Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. I had to change locations for the podcast because my wife is a lawyer. She's working from home, and my son's working schoolwork from home, and it was too noisy in my kitchen where I usually do it. So I've gone, you know, Bruce, you know, I've been... People have been thinking that Bruce McCurdy, he's a learned man with all those books behind him. Mm. So I had to had to do the same. I've been meaning to say every I I, I think I started a trend, you know, because every time I look at the at the uh, TV news, they're interviewing some person from their home, and they always seem to be standing in front of their library of books. And uh, uh, it seems to be, uh, I guess, it just caught on, eh? Yeah, oh. and it's a big trend. So I guess mm-hmm. everyone wants to look like they're well-read. And yeah. uh, I'll look closely and see how many of those books move from one podcast to the next. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to be a huge reader of books. Yeah, me too. In the last decade, not so much, not since Twitter and the Internet. And the Internet. The new mm-hmm. information age. I listen to books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I know you do. On Audible. Um, and I've heard of a couple great ones recently, but... Uh, Anyway, let's get at it, Bruce. Feels sure. good today, Bruce. It feels great today because the NHL, we're, we're starting to hear really interesting rumblings about the NHL season resuming. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Oilers PK, which I'm digging into in a series of posts. We're going to talk about Dave Tippett and his coaching strategy. But let's start with this news about what might happen. And it's funny where it came from. Because it's it's a it all started with a hockey writer or, or a sportscaster I've never heard before Andy Slater of Fox. No, just wait. It's not him. Yeah, uh, yeah. Andy Slater of Fox Sports Atlanta. These are how, how unfamiliar the names are. Um, he was interviewing uh, Florida Panthers president Matt Caldwell, who I've never heard of either. <laughs> and <laughs> Caldwell was talking about the season resuming in um you know getting going the players getting moving in june and skating playoffs start in july and i'll read you the quote and this was transcribed by greg wasinski of espn um and who's done a good story on it you should go read greg's story it's the yeah. best story out there right now sums it all up and on the uh slater's radio show here's what caldwell says the players right now are all quarantined i know for the nhl Our players are quarantined through the end of April, and that will probably be extended into May. But when we are able to come out of the quarantine period, players are going to need time to work out. I think all the leagues are thinking about uh, some training camp that we would do before the start of the season. So that's going to take us into the June timeframe. At least with the NHL, we're trying to target sometime in July. When we feel that the players are safe, when we have have enough testing and we have enough ways to get back on the ice, for us it's probably going to be contained playing at four or five neutral sites. So all that's being discussed right now. My guess is that we would start with limited fans or empty arenas. So just with the teams and the associated staffs. And uh, <clears throat> that was followed up by um, Emily Kaplan and Wyshynski, who did some reporting, and they named some uh, favorite sites, Bruce, including mm-hmm. uh, Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, Minnesota, right. Minneapolis, and Edmonton. Edmonton, Bruce. Edmonton. It's a little less exciting than it might be because 
fans won't be able to attend. And of course, right. this is all uncertain. This is still all speculation. I and mean, there's a, a lot has to check out first. A lot has to be done. This may not happen. Although I've been predicting for some time that this will happen. This is going to happen. And I'm just saying this because I've been following the pandemic news. We already have American states opening up. We're going to see how that goes. We have Germany opening up. So they're not all crazy right-wing Republican American states that are opening up, like Texas and Florida and so on, such and such. It's Germany. Sober Germany is opening up. They're climbing down. They're the cat in the tree. They're climbing down from the tree, and they're going to face the barking dog on the ground, and we'll see how that goes. So Germany's opening up. Um, this is in May. Mm-hmm. Um, I expect some Canadian jurisdictions are going to start to lift restrictions in May and June as well. And we also know in the summertime, some scientists speculate because the, this is a coronavirus. It's like a cold virus, but it's far right. more lethal, um, more infectious perhaps as well than the regular cold virus, that these uh, viruses tend to go away in the summer as well. But I don't think that you'll have normal playoffs if the coronavirus, this is if the, this virus goes away in the summer because there's too much risk of the players getting the getting the disease themselves and then having to quarantine them and the whole team. So I think that they're looking for situations like in Edmonton at the Marriott Hotel right. where you can quarantine four teams. There's there's food services. There's a gym at the Marriott. Uh, I think it's Simon Bennett's gym. I can't remember what it's called right now. There's the Oilers training facilities. There's first class facilities at, at, at there. There's two at rinks. And I think we're going to see this in Edmonton is uh is my bet what's your take well my initial reaction hearing this coming out of florida was if they're going to, if they want to play hockey in an empty arena they could do what better than to play in florida i mean they've been practicing social distancing in that arena for as long as they've had a team <laughs> seriously i heard um uh john shannon on bob Stoffer's show he was the guest after you in your fine segment today uh, on Oilers now, and he said they've moved beyond, as far as he knows, they've moved beyond the true neutral site data uh, options like North Dakota that you and I discussed at one time, and uh, there was another uh, American state, um, and he said it was a, a logistical issue with, you know, just the hotels, the security, you know, not everything sort of linked together the way you have this sort of optimal uh, arrangement in downtown Edmonton with the hotel right there, owned by you know, Kate's uh, Ice District. You know, like there, there's there's a real sort of contained, potentially contained community there with you know pedways and and uh, uh, relatively easy, I would think, to secure from the outside, and only have authorized personnel on the inside. So I think Edmonton has got a pretty good crack at it. That said, it doesn't fit my idea of a neutral site unless they're deciding they're going to make the Oilers go somewhere else while they bring in uh, uh, teams from the east or something. But I, that wouldn't make any sense either. And honestly, as you say, without the fans, the home ice advantage would be diminished. It wouldn't be zero, but it would be, you know, you have the knowledge, intimate knowledge of the rink and so on. But it would be uh, much diminished without the uh, fan feedback that uh, that often stimulates the home team. Just tweeting out the story here. I think, um, yeah, I, I, uh, we'll see what happens. It's good as, uh, as good as we can say for now. But um, I, you know, there's they have to open up the borders. They'd have to get the local um, 
you know, Dr. Dina Hinshaw and the Premier would both have to sign off on this. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll hear. Maybe we'll hear from Jason Kenney today on this. We'll see. Um, there's the press conference today. Oh, yeah. And this is big news. Um, I, I, the owners would have the advantage of, of well, I, I think, I wonder if some of the players could live, still live. I think some of them live at the Marriott Hotel above. Wonder, they probably surprise would, me. They probably couldn't stay in their own homes, though. They probably have to all go into quarantine, into the lockdown. Right. Because you just can't take that risk of one player getting sick. And mm-hmm. then, because the rule going forward, if, if we're anything like Taiwan, right? And so far we have followed a, ta- a strict approach like Taiwan in Alberta, at least. Mm-hmm. What they do is if you get sick, you're in mandatory 14-day quarantine and everyone you know is in mandatory uh, 14-day quarantine. And that's how they've had almost, they've had just minuscule number of deaths and minuscule number of cases. So if we follow that model and, you know, m- most Many uh, jurisdictions are kind of leaning in that direction, and we have been doing. That's what we would do as well. So you couldn't you couldn't have the players in anything but quarantine. Right. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's a tall ask, especially if you're talking about a playoff run that might be, uh, you know, several weeks. We won't we won't say the full two months like like a normal year, two plus months, because I suspect they'll tighten it up somehow. But it would be weeks, and you're talking about a uh, some kind of of uh, preparation period and probably a few regular season games and then some kind of playoff run. So uh, however they do it, it will be, uh, uh, it'll need a huge, huge commitment and sacrifice from the players and really from all of the staff and, and so on from the, you know, the rink attendants to the equipment manager to the, you know, the video crew to the, TV people and and on and on it goes. It's just a huge list. The more more I think about it, the more classes of uh, of, of uh, service people that that make the game happen. You know the the officials, the minor officials, uh, and on it goes. It's it's a long list. And I uh, I had a little exchange with Steve Lansky of uh, Big Mouth Sports, who of course was a Hockey Night in Canada uh, producer for. Uh, um, uh, a number of years, and I asked him about the TV aspect, and Steve said that, uh, I, I asked if it was maybe 200 people that they would need for to pull off a hockey game, uh, including all essential personnel. Yeah, he thought 200 was a pretty reasonable estimate, and that's for one game with two teams, right? You know, that's interesting. The, the TV crew might not necessarily have to be in quarantine. Like, if, if, they're, if they have no contact with the players... Mm-hmm then the TV crew uh, wouldn't have to be in that kind of tight lockdown. Um, and if someone got sick, well, then you'd, you'd move them out and other people would come into work, just like any other work situation is going to be going forward, just like it is right now for, for the work situations which are going on. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you'd have to have all of those 200 people in quarantine. I wonder, yeah. like, could they play every night, Bruce? Well, oh, the go other, ahead, sorry. The other, the other thing you said that was interesting to me was that uh, some aspects would be streamlined like he said normally they come into a rink and they have to set everything up to do a broadcast and then they tear everything down and he said those people they'd only really have to set it up once and then it would only be maintenance right because they'd be set and ready to roll the whole thing would be would be programmed and set up for tv and once they had every you know their cameras in place and all the wiring and everything else however they do it these days 
that would be more of a one-off job as opposed to each and every game. You know, it's like like it's be like Celine Dion doing all of her concerts in Las Vegas as opposed to moving around and going to you know Edmonton one night, Calgary the next night, and so on, where they're always tearing up and tearing down and setting up and. Uh, that would be so. Some of that stuff would be would be streamlined out of it, but he still figured around 200, 200 folks. Ooh, wouldn't have guessed that many, but there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, and so Vegas is apparently one of the teams in the running. So that's kind of scary, you know. But They're I don't get think basketball. That, I uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think this is going. I don't. I don't see Vegas being a competitor for Edmonton. I don't know what kind of case, what kind of low case load they have there. That said. It doesn't really, on some level, it matters how big the spread is in your community. But if everyone's in quarantine, it doesn't. But what if half the people involved in it are and half aren't? Then you really do need to be in a, in a community where there's low spread, low low community spread of the virus. And that would favor Edmonton. But I, I can't say if Vegas has low community spread or not. Um, I'm guessing that they don't just because of the amount of international travel there, that their numbers are higher. But I, I don't know about that. Um but I'm an Edmonton homer, so of course I'm going to say they'll play here in Edmonton. And, and the funny thing was he said limited fans. So what are they, what are they going to say? Okay, we're going to have uh, each, it's going to cost you $50,000, but you got the whole section to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Just so there'll be 16, I don't know how many sections in the, in the downtown arena. There's probably 30, just 30, 30 people. You know, in theory, again, if there if there's no contact with the players and they're far enough away, like there's a you know a quarantine zone around the ice, you could have some amount of fans going. Um, you know, you line up on the dots, um, but I don't think that's happening. I don't think there's going to be any fans because that really would be a hometown advantage for the because one well, other fans worth about fifty fans from any other city. Yeah, you know, you're introducing layers of complexity and risk there that I just yeah. don't see them doing. I just don't me, see it. Me, me neither. They're going to keep it. Keep, this would definitely be uh, the KISS principle would be in place here, Bruce, because mm -hmm. uh, keeping it simple, stupid would is the only way to go, man. There's so many things that could go haywire. And you can't afford, again, I don't think you can afford to have one player get sick. So right. uh, we'll see what yeah. happens. No uh, sneaking Kurt, out at, Kurt, no sneaking out at night. Point. And Kurt actually said, Kurt, Kurt actually mentioned July. Um, yeah. And when we last yeah. talked, is the date? So he was hearing something about July. I was thinking it might be a little earlier, but I'll take July. And you know what? I just, I really do think Bruce, um, like, like my my wife, she's not a huge hockey fan. She doesn't barely watch the games. But when she heard this, she was so excited. And I just think, if this can happen, it will be. I I I know it'll be. A, I'll feel a huge pick me up and a huge boost and. Like we're we are getting on with things in the face of a really really hard times. We're finding a way to get on with things, and that's what's got to happen. So, I like it. Let's talk. Are we done with that? I want to talk? Uh, PK. Well, I was just gonna, Go I was ahead. I just going to say about uh, uh, Gary Bettman saying, you know, we're fully prepared to play hockey in the summer, and I'm saying, well, you gave out the Stanley Cup on June 20th one year, which is like one day before the summer solstice, so it's not much of a stretch, but I, I think starting it in the summer, starting it up again, obviously, that's a huge break from tradition. That's your mandatory mandatory uh, Gary Bettman shot of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just noticing it now. You often do take shots at Gary Bettman, and I'm, not, I'm saying that's fine. That's fine, but you, you got a couple... You, 
you're, there's some things he's done, especially with that loser I, point. You, you do not like. Oh, I detest the loser point. I think the whole system is broken because of that thing. Uh, and I had a long-standing grudge of Batman coming in and awarding franchise after franchise south of 40 degrees latitude. Um, he does, uh, there are things that he does that I, I respect. And one of the things that he's done uh, is uh, he's actually taken the heat that he takes where he gets booed every time he comes out to present the Stanley Cup, even to the home team. Uh, he's actually taken and turned that to his advantage with a little bit of self-deprecating humor, which I appreciate in any human. So I, I, I'll give him a point for that. Uh, he's not my favorite, but I, you know, I'm a rail against authority type person anyway, as you know. So He's got... <laughs> He's a cold-eyed, alligator-blooded yeah. businessman. Yep. And uh, as cool and calculated as they get. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Bruce. I remember during the arena debate, and you don't have to tell me which side you took. I still don't know to this day. I think people know what side I was on. I was arguing strenuously for this. And one of the arguments I made was, like, with the 1990s firmly in mind, is we need a new arena to secure the future of the Oilers in Edmonton. And I said, you know, this was in 2013, 20, and we were booming in 2012. People were saying, what are you talking about? Like, we don't need that. I said, times could change. Things could happen. We, this city might not always boom again. And we might be in a situation where the Oilers really will have, because the teams that lost their arenas in the 1990s all had old arenas. And that was a huge problem. The fact that we had renovated our arena was one of the reasons we kept our arena. So one of the arguments I was making that this was good for Edmonton was that times could actually change and we need to secure this team in this city. So, Well, Edmonton's in a very different position than Calgary as of this moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. what are the prospects now that in this economy, with the way things are going to go, that, I mean, there's no way... Let's, you know, maybe the billionaires still have their billions and they're just going to have to put a lot more money into it. And that's, you know, to give people credit in Edmonton who didn't want the, the funding. I, I completely uh, agree, understand the argument of you don't want to subsidize a billionaire and millionaire players. You know, that is a good point. I don't disagree with it. Fair enough. And um, we'll leave, I'll leave it at that. Bruce, let's talk about um, Dave okay. Tippett. Let's talk. Let's talk about the Oilers getting ready for the playoffs, man. Sure. All right. What are they? What do they got going on the first two lines, and what what, what, do, you, what well, do you expect to see? I've been writing about Dave Tippett. Uh, first two parts. I've uh, really been diving deep into first Ken Holland, and now a little bit more uh, Dave Tippett uh, because they're new this year, and because you know we we have our our first chance to see up close these these veteran successful um, management coaching. Type. So it's it's fun to watch them operate and see how they do business. Uh, so in part one, I wrote about the, the great performance on special teams, uh, which we talked about the power play before, and I think we'll talk about the penalty kill in a bit. So I won't go there other than to say that's what's kept the team afloat all year. Um, but uh, last night I wrote about a, a specific turning point in the season. And in one sense, it was it was pretty obvious, but obvious enough that, it, you know, it deserved a little further scrutiny. And that was the uh, uh, right after the Christmas roster freeze, when uh, Holland sent out Marcus Granlin and called up Kyler Yamamoto and for, really gave first chance to a young forward all year. 
And at the same time, uh, Dave Tippett reloaded uh, and rebooted his forward lines by deciding to break up the deadly duo of uh, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, who were ripping it up scoring-wise, but who were getting ripped up uh, goals against wise. And in fact, at that point, were giving up more than they were getting. And the worst part still was with those two guys playing on one line, had left a lot of minutes in the game where both guys were on the bench and the rest of the team was underwater. So uh, Tippett made the, the crucial decision uh, New Year's Eve uh, to take Drysaddle off of the McDavid line, move him into the middle of the ice, and uh, uh, get, you know give him his own line in the same position, both players playing their same uh, uh, their position of strength. And basically re- realigning the what I call the McDavid Drysaddle axis from a horizontal to a vertical axis. You start with one, then the other comes over the boards after, as opposed to other teams dealing with both at once, putting out their top two defensemen, their best checking center, and you know trying trying to withstand it and, and kill them on the counterattack. Uh, it created bigger matchup problems for the other team. It created better matchups for I'd say Drysaddle in particular. And the the thing that the creative thing or what Tippett did in my mind was all year he had Nuge playing second line center and McD- and Drysaddle playing left wing, and yet when he put them on the same line, he switched them, and he put Drysaddle into the middle and Nuge out to the wing, and I think that played into the strengths of both players, uh, especially I, I would say defensively. I'd say uh, Nugent Hopkins was having. Uh, he was having some issues in the, you know, the three-on-three down-low part of the game, but he is very, very good on the back check, on the stick lift, on the steal, uh, you know, on the on the uh, create the turnover and puck going the other way, and he does that well from the wing. And Leon, you know, Tippett just basically gave him the whole ice and said, "We want you in the middle of the ice. We want you in the in the middle of things, making things happen." And and he credited Drysaddle for doing a lot of work on the defensive side of his game and improving. And, you know, from the moment that line was put together, which was actually January 2nd in Buffalo, where they moved Nugent Hopkins up to play with Dreisaitl and Yamamoto, they were absolute dynamite. They were scoring over four goals per 60 minutes together and allowing only two. So they were basically double sco- uh, doubling the other team in, in scoring. And it created a little bit of complexity, let's call it, on the McDavid line, and that McDavid got Cassian and James Neal were his nominal wingers, and you're saying, okay, well, that's pretty good. You, you know, he's got his same right winger, and he's got this this big scoring uh, veteran on the left side, uh, but both Cassian and Neal were kind of hitting the skids at that point of the season, and then everybody ran into issues that caused them to miss games. Cassian got suspended twice, nine games. Neil got hurt, missed 16 games. McDavid himself got hurt, missed seven games. Uh, so there was a lot of sort of flux on that line. But still, anytime McDavid was playing, the other team had to respect that he was out there. They would generally use their top defense pair uh, against McDavid. And his line just really broke even, I think, 19-4-18 against over the span of games, the last 30 games. Uh, but the dry saddle line, outscored by a lot, 
And then the third and fourth lines, they got outscored. They've been outscored all year. They've been scoring under 40% of the goals when they're on the ice. But their ice time was cut down by a significant amount by by the, you know, only being the bottom six instead of the bottom nine. That makes a huge difference. And so the dry saddle line did more outscoring than the then the depth players got outscored, and the Oilers were actually plus, I think, plus four at five on five in that stretch, and they kept killing it on both special teams. So they became a uh, basically an elite team uh, in those 30-game run. They won 17, lost eight, and got extra point in five. So you know, a very good, uh, a very good record over the uh, over that span, and they went from uh, outside looking in of a playoff berth to being firmly ensconced in a, a very good position as, as the season was about to wind down. Yeah, I think um, Nugent Hopkins, Bruce, like I know um, there's been, a, I think it's a small faction of fans. There's a, there's a small faction of fans who believe anything, you know, there's a small faction of Oilers fans who believe, believes that Elvis lives, but there is a, a sizable faction of Oilers fans who believe and have always believed Nugent Hopkins is a better player than Leon Dreisaitl. And a better center, and and I, I really like Ryan Nugent Hopkins' game, but yep. Matt, it's been apparent for a long time that Leon Dreisaitl is a superior player than than Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and it's not close. And it's just, and one of the ways it's not close is um, the ability to advance the puck out of the defensive zone and win battles in the defensive zone. Mm-hmm. They're both they both tend to be puck watchers a bit in this in the defensive slot. They'll both yep. focus too much on the puck, like all offensive players do, and let someone slip in behind them and score a goal or get off a great A shot. They're both prone to that. But Nuge is yep. too. For a smart hockey player, Nuge has frustrated me over the years with that tendency. And I don't I don't I still don't get it, but I just take it as he's a kid who grew up with the puck on his stick. Right. And man, it is hard, it is hard to get out of that orientation. And, and of course, dry subtle is the same way. But Dreisaitl is a much better player in terms of winning battles down low and then controlling the puck and single-handedly uh, protecting it and either skating it out himself or passing it out. He is unparalleled for an Oilers forward in terms of that skill. So when he wants to ramp it up as a defensive center, I mean, he's when he wants to be a, a two-way player, he's the best two-way player um, on the Oilers right now um, because of that. I, I think his defense is uh, stronger than Connor McDavid's defense. When, when they're both playing at their peak level, McDavid's offense is, is higher than than Dreisaitl's. But um, I, I love that move in that regard. So um, one other thing, I, talking to Bob Stoffer today, Gaetan Haas, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm, I got strong spider feelings there, Bruce. I don't know if you were listening to the conversation. I got strong spidey feelings that the Oilers are going to re-sign Gaetan Haas here. Uh, did you feel the same way? And I'm okay with that. I don't think he had a great year, but I'm okay with it. What, what's your take? Well, I identified him all along as being kind of a bubble player that is is replaceable, but might not be replaced. You know, sure, they could find a better better guy, but as Bob said, I mean, you look at the list of potential free agent, uh, especially if you're honing in on a right shot center. I mean, Ryan Strom is no longer available, right? Thanks. Well, did he you. just sign? Uh, well, no, but he's Isn't not. Isn't he UFA? He, yeah, he's RFA. Oh, he's that R- was the, that was the genius of the contract that Chiarelli signed him to, and then he went and dumped him twenty games later. <laughs> That's oh. one of the ones that really oh. makes you angry. That, oh, that trade just 
just crazy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's no Ryan Stroms out there. Like, we actually had a solution for our 3C, right shot 3C. Yeah, that was a real good solution at a reasonable price. But Bruce, come on. Ryan's uh, winner, man. Ryan's uh, Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's... Uh, yeah, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to put that one on Gary Bettman. That was just a dumb trade. But uh, there's not that many uh, right shots. If you don't care about right shot, obviously there's more options. There's more left shooters. But, I mean, you could go out and and hire, you know, a, a known commodity, an experienced guy like uh, Steve Tambellini once did with Eric Belange. You know, and that doesn't necessarily work out either. With, with Gaetan Haas, you know, where is the ceiling? Have we seen all we've seen? Like I've seen a lot of games where he was what I would call ineffectual. Didn't really make a whole lot happen. Didn't really get burned a whole lot. Had a hell of a lot of try, a lot of speed, got knocked off his feet a lot, lost a lot of battles. You know, there's like pluses and minuses about the guy. And he scored, what, 10 points? Uh, so low-level scoring, but, you know, well, I mean, if they finished out the season, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't even get to 15 points. He, ideally, you want forwards that are close to 20 points, even at the bottom of your roster, and he wasn't there. How much was he learning? Like, to me, when I looked at uh, Joachim Niegaard, uh, I saw a player who I thought was improving quite steeply up the curve just before he got hurt, and that injury was very unfortunate and it turned out to be quite a bad one. Uh, but he'd already shown enough that while he was hurt, they signed him to another one-year extension, which I haven't done yet with Haas. So it tells me, you know, what I see is uh, Holland prioritizing, saying, well, I want to get Archibald, then we'll worry about Shane. I want to get Negar, then I'm going to worry about Haas and players of, of that class. So uh, he may be in limbo for a little while, uh, but it wouldn't shock me if they if they did give him another one year, and it wouldn't disappoint me particularly. I like the guy; he's, he's kind of fun to watch. But uh, there's uh, you know there's uh, he's not a difference maker. Yeah, like my concern with him, there's a couple. Um, he didn't seem to improve appreciably from the start of the season to the end. Fair comment. He he fell down a ton, yes. especially I thought as the season went on, it was like polyarbitis. Or he was falling down all the time. And God bless Jesse Pugliarvi. I've been a huge fan of him, but man, he fell down a lot. And I thought it might, in the end, like with the hips, maybe it was the hip problem. But that last season. So Haas, he, he, he was willing to engage. He was not able to win puck battles. Mm-hmm. Tippett didn't trust him on the PK. That was another big concerning factor. Because like, if you're going to be a bottom line forward, yep. but the plus factors, the guy is fast. He's super fast. Juju Kara is not an NHL center. He will never be. No, I shouldn't say that. Like, I I doubt he will be an NHL center. I just don't see the awareness and the ability with the puck um, to for him to be an NHL center. So they they need another NHL center. If so, if Gaetan Haas is your thirteenth forward, you could do worse than Gaetan Haas is your thirteenth forward, Bruce, and and I uh, or your fourteenth forward. So I I'm okay if they sign him. And, and the the point that that Bob Stoffer made. A couple times was that this was his first year in North America. Yes, maybe give him another year. Let's see how it goes. And you know, how often does that work out? Never. Well, sometimes it works out. Sometimes does it? Does it ever work out? Once in a while. Yeah, once in a while. Can you think of? I can't. Some of these. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I'd have to scrape the memory banks. But some (laughs) of these guys, you know, I mean, you talk if if you're talking about the subcategory of guys that came over and it took him a year to establish himself, and then by the second year they got good. 
I'll uh, I'll put out the name of Jan Hayda, who came to Edmonton. He was played good for a year, team. showed some stuff. Uh, not enough. They let him go, and he became a pretty strong player for other huge, teams. After. Listen, man, oh. huge mistake. I was a huge Jan Hayda fan that first year. You could see the guy could play. I don't think yeah. he wanted to come back to Edmonton. Was the problem like like I think Probably that was not. his decision. Uh, yeah, he was an NHL player right from the get go. Right. So. Yeah, maybe. I'm sure there's a small list of players. Maybe we can look it up if they resign him and we can do that. Could be the, the theme of whoever does the post. That could be what we could look at is guys who had that breakthrough in their second year. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, like mid 20s European forwards who didn't impress first year and then came on. Yeah, that, there, you'd be able to single out a few, I think, but it'd be, a, it'd be a fairly small sampling of players to begin with. So that'd be fun. All righty. Uh, the PK Bruce. Mm-hmm. So the PK, I, I did a, I did a, a, a little bit of a historical look at the PK, okay. and that's all I've done so far. Uh, it was a fairly uh, concise post. You could be charitable and say that not a, not a, not a long post. It was a, 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 a set, guy. set the set the stage. Set the stage. Let me just find the data that I. It took me a while to make this chart, though. I will say later, a long time. Um. PK. So the Oilers PK last year, Bruce, was the second worst in the NHL. This year it was the second best. It was last year the worst PK in Oilers team history. This year it is the second best penalty kill in Oilers team history. That is a dramatic, remarkable, unbelievable change in fortunes for the PK. And I I, I haven't looked into it enough to have theories myself on it. I, I just really wanted to put it into context. Now, I should say when I was doing these rankings, Bruce, I didn't go by PK percentage. If you just go by PK percentage, you get the the PKs in the early 2000s being the best PKs. And I initially was writing a post based on that. Like I was looking who was Mm -hmm. on the Pichet, Marchant, and, you know, about to. And I didn't really remember that PK being particularly good. And I was thinking, wasn't that PK with Curry and Tikkanen way better than that Marchant PK? You know, so I was almost on the post, and that popped in my head. Wasn't that weren't they the best? So I so instead of doing it by PK percentage, I went by ranking in the NHL right. that season. And if you do it that way, which I think is the best way to do it, mm-hmm. I I think it's the superior way to actually rank PKs <clears throat> because PK percentage change. If it's easier to score goals in the NHL like it was in the '80s, everyone's going to have a lower PK percentage. They're going to kill off fewer penalty kills. And if it's a dead puck era, like it was in the early 2000s, you're going to have higher uh, penalty kill percentages. And I'm going to re-rank the power plays based on this, by the way. Cause I, mm-hmm. I, but so what I found was if you rank it where they where they rank in the NHL, the best power play the orders have ever PK the orders have ever had was the 1988-1989 Edmonton Oilers PK featuring Tikkanen and Curry as their two main uh, players. We don't have time on ice from that era. But McTavish was on that PK. Messier was on that PK. Kevin Lowe, Charlie Huddy, uh, Randy Gregg was on that PK. And uh, we're kind of left guessing somewhat after that because it's, I, I don't remember if Glenn Anderson was still a penalty killer at that point or not. But that, that, that 1988-1989 PK was the number one ranked PK in the NHL. It's the only time the owners have ever had that. And by the 1990 playoffs, the, that uh, PK was was only okay in 1989-90, but in the playoffs, Bruce, my recollection of it was I've never seen penalty killing that good in my life. life. 
than Yuri Curry, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, and Yuri Curry and Esatikin and working in tandem to cut off passing lane, block shots, smother players, forecheck the hell out of them. They've hardly got in the order zone when they were out there. And when they did, they hardly kept it in. Because those two penalty killers together were the two best forward penalty killers I've ever seen working together in my life. And turned out they were the number one uh, PK. This one, second. Shan and Archibald, good work. So what do you what what do you say? Why was this power PK so much uh, better? Well, first of all, I'm go- I'm going to put a di- slightly different slant on it. Uh, we're we're looking at PK percentage of uh, kill rate. Yeah. And NHL.com keeps track of that, and that's sort of their default go-to. The best team is the team that kills off the highest percentage of penalty kills. But on their actual penalty kill stat page, they have net PK percentage. Yeah. which includes shorthanded goals minus goals against. So it's always going to be negative. They're always going to give up more power play goals than, than uh, shorthanded goals. But those orders of the 80s, and not just that 89 team, but the ones before that, uh, you know, the Gretzky teams, I mean, I defaulted to the 1983-84 Edmonton Oilers, uh, who uh, uh, set a uh, untouchable all-time record of 36 shorthanded goals in a season. You, allu- you, you, you alluded to this team in your post. You know, you noted that Wayne Gretzky had 12 goals and 11 assists on the penalty kill that year, 23 points. And I looked it up. Only three teams in NHL history, not named Edmonton Oilers, have ever scored 23 shorthanded goals in a season. Entire teams. Gretzky had 23 points shorthanded this year. Anyway, that year the Oilers were seventh in the league in PK percentage, 79.7%. But when you look at net PK percentage, lo and behold, Edmonton Oilers, number one, 89.2%, because they scored almost one shorty for every two power play goals they gave up. You know what, Bruce? So just, I, think you're, I think you're right. I, I'm gonna, <laughs> I concede this argument like right now. That's the superior way to rate. Uh, and I'm going to go change my chart. Won't change the post, but I'll repost with these new numbers because you're they, dead right. This is the this crushed way to do it. Yeah, they crushed it. They, every year they scored 26, 27 shorthanded goals, and then this one year, the year they they set the 446 goals in one season record. That 36 of those goals came while they were down a man. It was just unbelievable how uh, how those guys how how deadly they were on the counterattack. Now 88, 89 that you referenced, they were still great. They scored, I think, 27 shorties that year without Gretzky. And Curry and Tikkanen, especially, were phenomenal. I remember there was a game in Toronto in a, maybe early November that year. And this was after Gretzky's gone. We're all in eggshell saying, is our team just going to cave through the floor? Or what's going to happen here? And they went into Toronto, and uh, Tikkanen uh, set an NHL record, scoring two shorthanded goals in 12 seconds, uh, both set up by Curry as the uh, Oilers smoked the Leafs. And I, I, it was at that moment I kind of relaxed and went, you know what, this team is still pretty darn good. I think we're going to be competitive for a while yet. And, of course, they didn't They didn't win that year, but the next year they hung around and uh, won the fifth Stanley Cup. They and were he, such great hockey players, Yari Curry and Esatikin. They were so fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I just, I hope that, um, I think Nugent Hopkins has a chance to reach the level of a, of a Tekken in here. Maybe even like if he plays a full year with dry settle in the same line, he'll, he, maybe he'll get that hundred point season, kind of a curry like level of scoring in a year uh, as a winger. Like I was denigrating 
you know, not denigrating, but I was saying Drysdale is a better center, and he is. But Nugent Hopkins is a fabulous winger in the NHL, and uh, thank goodness that the Oilers have now tried him there, and he's got that chance. But he's he's a PK guy, power play guy, and he could be that winger, that yeah, that that quality of winger that that Tikkan and Curry winger that the Oilers, excuse me, really need on this team. And if Yamamoto can stay healthy, maybe he can be another one. Well, well, after they moved him to wing, Nuge had 41 points in 30 games. So that's about a 110-point pace. Like, that is elite high-level scoring uh, for an extended period of time. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to redo my chart here. And um, I wonder how the 2019-20 will turn out, because they didn't score a lot. They of got three goals. shorties. Yeah, they, they, so they, they dominated... Fall. They dominated in regular percentage on PK and power play, but they actually gave up 10 shorties and only scored three. So that narrowed the gap a little bit. They were still plus 21 overall on special teams. Uh, but uh, they were, uh, uh, it wasn't because of, uh, uh, it was for the shorthanded goal side, but it was all for the, you know, they scored on their power plays and they prevented the other team from scoring on theirs. And that was their, their strength. Now, Here's your other question. question. Yeah, sorry, carry on. Here's my question to you, Bruce. Mm -hmm. um, would you do your ranking based on ranking in the NHL uh, uh, percentage for the percentage ranking, um, the overall percentage ranking when you work in both goals against and goals for? Or would you just do it? So, so would you do it on like where they ranked out of the 21 teams? Or would you just use those raw percentage rankings, the final one that takes into account both stats in order to rank it from one to, uh, well, one I, to 40? I, I, I think the more com like more completest way of doing it, which is my sort of go-to, is to uh, include the, you know the net. Uh, you know, 83-84, they scored 36, they allowed 77. Their shorthanded goal differential was minus 41, and their net percentage was first in the league. And that, to me, that tells me that if you on balance overall, they were barely ahead of Washington Capitals. Yeah, yeah, but to compare eras. But to compare eras, would you just go yeah. with the net percentage to compare uh, eras? Would you think net, that's the fair way to do it? Net net percentage ranked within the league that season. That's would be. So you mine. would go with the okay. So if they're like you, you'd use the ranking. You wouldn't just use the raw percentage then right. to rank them. That's what I'm wondering. Like so, if you let, you're comparing the 1988 89 team compared to the no, you're comparing this year's 29 20 team compared to the um, you know 87 88 team. Do you just use the raw percentage or do you actually use the rank where they finished in the NHL? What do you think would be a superior way? Well, I guess we can talk about this. Yeah, I, I, would, I, later. I would go with rank within the league, but I would use the net, the rank of net. Yeah. Percentage. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That's fine. Already. Well, any thoughts on this, this PK, why it's so good? Cause it, it was really good. Like however they're going to finish in the order rankings all the time, but this was damn good. Well, some of it was goaltending. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> there's, uh, there's only, uh, I looked at this a while back, but as I recall, there was 52 goalies who played 25 or more games in the NHL. And only six of them had a penalty kill save percentage higher than 900. And two of them were Mike Smith and Mikko Koskinen. So the orders had, you know, two goalies that were way above average on the penalty kill. 
So you could say the goaltending was lights out, that's why the penalty killing did well. Or you could say the penalty killing did a better job of cutting down those killer cross-seam passes for the one-time bombs from the opposite circle that they didn't give up too many five-bell chances that the goalie had actually had a chance to stop more pucks, and they did stop more pucks. So I think it's a little of column A and a little of column B. Goalies played well. I'm not sure how sustainable it's going to be. You know, I'm not confident saying next year we're going to have a top three penalty killing team. I'm pretty confident you say the power play is still going to be really good. Uh, but the penalty kill, I mean, they did cut out those cross-seam pass. I mean, how many times, David, did you and I look at scoring chances on a goal against and we would see Zach Cassian and Mark Letestu both beaten by the same pass from the guy on the right point to the guy in the left circle would bomb home a one-time drive before the goalie could get across. How many times did we see that? Too many times. My most desperate... <laughs> My most desperate moment of last season. This is like this was cross desperation. This is when two two uh, trains of desperation collide in the night. It was the Milan Lucic desperation. Like he, like what were they going to do with him? How could he ever help the Oilers win? Colliding with the terrible PK, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, maybe if maybe he's Lucic is like Matt Hendricks, and Matt Hendricks was kind of slow and big, but he was a good PK guy. And then I thought maybe that would, you know, avoid the collision. But anyway, or what? I don't. My metaphor is a little bit strained. But I, I just thought, I just I was thinking Milan Lucic on the PK. That's how des- desperate I was about both situations. It was. They were so. They were so bad. And Cassian was mm. such a big part of it. And you pointed this out a few times last year with his lack. One of the stats that really showed, like he had like three block shots all year yeah. on the PK. Like, what are you doing out there? Like. Yeah. This is one of the, the things that forwards do now. They block shots. And like Zach Cassian, he's a tough, really good hockey player. Mm-hmm. But he was not a PK guy. And he couldn't make the reads. The passes would no. go through him all. Like, that puck was pinballing around uh, triangularly, yeah. like angling around the other zone last year like crazy. So I'm of the mind that it was cutting out the angle passes. And you know one other thing that happened? I think Oscar Clefbaum really improved as a defensive player on the PK. He's He's getting smarter. And um, he's been on these special teams a lot. And we've talked about how he's got smarter on the power play. I think he got mm-hmm. a lot smarter on the PK and was starting to make really good reads and, and playing s- s- hockey. If he stays healthy, Oscar Clefbaum, man, we are going to see some fantastic hockey from this player in the next three years. Yeah, well, his uh, we talk about block shots. And, uh, of course, they are, they are the whipping boy of the fancy stats community to say the least. They're like the sacrifice bunts of hockey. And they are uh, uh, decried. I mean, Kent Wilson had a, had a famous analysis where he said, uh, blocking shots is like killing rats. It's better to do it than not do it. But if you find yourself doing it all the time, chances are you've got a bigger problem. Uh, <laughs> and he was talking about Chris Russell, then of the Calgary Flames, when he said that. Uh, but to me, I mean, it is it is a, a very dubious stat, but what it, what it tells me, with a guy like Zach Cass, you know, has basically close to zero, you wonder if the guy is ever in the shooting lane, you know. I mean, if you're just in your position in the shooting lane, you're going to block some shots. And it's, it's a lousy stat, but there's no stats for being in passing lanes, being in shooting lanes. So you can derive a little bit from that. The guys that block the most tend to be in the lanes the most often and 
that's where Oscar Kleppbaum uh, shines by that by that metric, and Zach Cassian does not. Well, Oscar Kleppbaum was kept on the penalty kill this year, and Zach Cassian was not. And uh, due respect to Cassian, I know the coach would like to see him on one of the other special teams, but I think the right decision was made. Do you know anyone who I'm just looking at the NHL block shot stats and Clefbaum led the team with 180 in two games? Led the league, he did, eh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Nurse 141 in 71 games, Bear 106, Russell 101. Um, mm-hmm. And I think all of those players were key power penalty killers. Yes. Um, d- does anyone break? I can't see on the NHL.com where they break it out for um, shorthanded situations. Do you know oh. any site that does? Does any site? Maybe. Um, no, I'm sure that data could be scraped. I'm not sure anyone does because, as mentioned, the fancy stats community that does scraping type things tends to devalue or, or, or countervalue block shots as a... As a you, you know who doesn't devalue block shots, Bruce? Mm-hmm. NHL coaches? Coaches. NHL players? Mm-hmm. You know, when, <laughs> that's who doesn't devalue them. Like, I, And I know like, you can say whatever you want about it, but come on. In the playoffs, are those are those winning teams blocking shots? Is that a is that a huge feature of their game? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. A Sometimes huge it sure can be for sure. Now I know you know there was studies done, and I don't know when more if there's been done more recently that there was no strong correlation between block shots and winning. So fair enough. Oh. But if you don't block shots, you ain't gonna win. <laughs> how about how about that? Or or maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if you didn't block any shots, you'd win. What do you think? But I'm saying the teams, you, it's part of the game, and um, it's a big. I think it's part of winning. I think it's part of winning hockey. So uh, how do you square that with it's, with it's not cor- correlated? I don't know. I have to look at it more closely. Oscar Kleppbaum, 180 block shots, and this was with missing nine games. Uh, David Savard, 163. Alexander Edler, 162. And Ed- Edler's a guy. I kind of see some Edler in Kleppbaum. You know, just kind of an all-round guy that. You know, it doesn't dominate in any one area, but it's been a darn good player for a darn long time, right? And and uh, obviously, Kapbaum's quite a few years younger and has a ways to go, but they're 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 kind of all-purpose guys, and and so that's a complimentary comparison coming from me at least. And uh, they so you know he's. Um, uh, that number is picking up. And sometimes, you know, it's not necessarily the big, hard, physical hitting guys that block a lot of shots. Tom Gilbert used to block a ton of shots. And it was just by being in the lane and, you know, not flinching and taking the odd one off the ankle, you know, but uh, being in the way and giving the, you know, other guys something to, uh, you know, a bumper to have to get the puck by. And to me, it has, it has defensive value and it's, I mean, often it's just simply a null play. The other team tries a shot, your team blocks it, or vice versa, where, you know, it's like a battle that gets sawed off. It's neither won or lost. Other than it tells you that which team has the puck and which end of the ice it's in. And the team that's blocking more shots because they're getting more shots fired against them, well, then that's probably not a good sign. Just seeing if a natural stat trick hits. Hmm. Oh, they do shots. They do it, Bruce. Yeah. Here, here, just, let's just uh, call team? up. By yeah, team? by team. So let's go. Oh, let's let's go. Uh, we'll have a, a live data search here. Penalty kill, and we'll go for the Oilers for this year only. And uh, of course, it's going to take a little while. 
I would say Ken Holland did also a pretty good job of uh, acquiring some forwards to uh, fill in for, for Zach Cassian, so they no longer had to play him in that particular role. So we want Rates. Right. And Josh Archibald and Riley Sheehan were the two of the top uh, guys taking up ice time. And um, here we go. Oilers, PK. Hits per 60 on the PK. Shot blocks per 60 on the PK. Okay. Um, Darnell Nurse. This is per 60 minutes of PK time. 11.8. Right. Adam mm-hmm. Larson. Uh, 11. Oscar Clefbaum, 10.4. Uh, no, that's Matt Benning, 10.4. Oscar Clefbaum, 10.1. Um, Ethan awesome. Bear. Ethan Barry 8.0, Chris Russell, the lowest of the defensemen out a lot of PK time. Isn't that fascinating? So we're just trying to, we'll have to try to, I'm going to have to try to understand these numbers, compare them to other years. But who would have guessed that? I think Chris Russell was playing different this year. And I think with a coaching uh, uh, tandem uh, of Jim Playfair and Dave Tippett uh, may have had something to do with that, that he was. Doing, doing a little less of the selling out hero play stuff to my eye. Well, yeah. were they playing the lanes more? Like maybe maybe it was play the lane, not the shot. I don't know. Like what I noticed them doing all year, and I don't notice they did it. Like they would, they'd let, let you pass. Like they would just really focus on that inside pass, like blocking that, taking the angle to the defenseman so they can't make that angled pass. Um, that was the forwards doing it. Maybe the D were doing that as well. That's really interesting. So we'll have to look over time at Chris Russell's stats on that and uh, and, uh, and get back to you guys on that and um, what, the, what the numbers are and what they mean, what we can make sense of the meaning at least. Okay. Well, I can get on a team basis. Uh, this would be uh, brute force to get the whole thing, but the Oilers, uh, the other teams attempted 608 shots and 459 of them were not blocked. So you can, uh, you know, 125% of the shot attempts against them were blocked. And that looks to be um, maybe a little high, but really about average for for uh, other teams. We'll have to compare uh, it to other years, yeah. too. Yes. So I'll be digging into that now. I know I was trying to think, okay. where am I going to go with this? But this has looked like a real rich area to, uh, to look at because... Um, that is one stat that's a big stat on the PK. It's, there, there may not be a bigger, well, I guess, um, takeaways. But really, do they do many takeaways? It's more like tips. Kill, yeah. no. it's too much. No, no, you need a one-on-one battle. And when it's four-on-five, you can't, you can't commit. You, you know you're, what I You're love. always containing as opposed to, uh, you know, going, taking on a guy one-on-one. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think takeaways shorthanded is a, is a, it would yield a lot of data. Now, what I love is tip, 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 pat, like tip pucks in the defensive zone, yes. shorthanded. How many times did you tip a puck? That will be a really useful stat. And I, and I wonder if NHL teams uh, keep those stats. I bet you some of them do. Well, Bruce, let's, I got to run. Uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw's on the uh, TV soon. All right. So okay. I have to ask her a question. So, uh-huh. yeah. Well, I'm going to ask them about. Alberta's most trusted public figure. I'm going to ask Dr. them Dina about. Hinshaw. I'm going to ask them if the NHL's coming to town. Or what? What it would take? What? What? What yeah, are the yeah, hurdles? Frame, frame it right. What are the yeah. hurdles that have to be crossed for this to happen? In their opinion. 
what I'm going to ask. Does that sound like a good question? Maybe. It does. Let's see. All right. Thanks. It does. It kind of marries your 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 two thrusts between being a hockey blogger and, of course, a, a public interest um, a reporter. And uh, it's absolutely a legitimate question. It's one aspect of society that we, you know, people clearly want to see get going again. And uh, judging from the feedback we continue to get from our readers and listeners, uh, people miss hockey, man. Uh, I know and, I do. And at the journal site now, Bruce, uh, mm -hmm. the hockey stories in the first two or three weeks, hardly anyone was reading the hockey stories that we were writing. In these, in this last two weeks, our stories are again getting huge readership. As much That's read great. as probably every story, any any story. So, people love the uh, Edmonton Edmontonians love the Oilers, and so do we. All right, talk to you later. All right, thanks, thanks, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> and in the meantime, and in between time, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.